You are listening to the Choose Your Struggle Podcast, a member of the Shameless Podcast Network. This week on the Choose Your Struggle Podcast is educator and author Michael Rosino. But first, Kid Mental, let's go. Things ain't always gonna go our way, but you can always win when you choose your struggle. And some battles will be yesterday, but today is for a new weekend. Choose your struggle, and don't worry about what they say, but you can always win when you choose your struggle. And you can bounce back just as Come on in, listening to just struggle. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. As I mentioned, you're hearing this while I am still in Nashville for uh, Pod Movement or Pod Move, whatever, it doesn't matter. Great podcast conference. Uh, I'll tell you all about it when I get back. Uh, I'm recording this a week in advance, so if, if something has happened and I'm not talking about it today, that's why. Today's guest is somebody that I uh, saw their work. Uh, I, I, I read something. I then went and bought the book and blew through it and uh, then reached out to the author to say I would love to chat for the show. Uh, luckily for me, he checked out the show and was like, oh, my God, this is a great show. Uh, these are literally a thing he did, which I appreciate, and said I would love to come on. Let's let's make it happen. Uh, today's guest is named uh, Michael Rosino. He wrote uh, the book Debating the Drug War, Race, Politics, and the Media. Uh, this is a really wonderful book. It's not easy to read. Um, when I say I blew through it, I mean uh, that was a lie. That, <laughs> that was a flat-out lie. It took me like 10 days uh, because it is a dense book, and it takes a lot of, of uh, time to consider what you're reading. This isn't just like a page-turner that you can flip through and move on. This really took some time for me to sit with what I was reading. Um, and, and, you know, you, you'll hear him say this on the show, uh, that was kind of by design or, or at least not, not by design. He worked really hard on this book. He spent two years in just the research phase of it alone, reading thousands of online comments, hundreds of, uh, newspaper and, and other media articles. Uh, he really dove into this and I applaud him for that. Uh, a quick note on something he talks about at the end of the show, as always, I asked him to shout out people that we should follow. And he emailed me a couple days later to say, you know, I really blanked on a couple of my favorite organizations. Would you mind shouting them out uh, when you you know, do do this show? So uh, here they are. Uh, one is Vocal NY, a grassroots organization in New York focusing on homelessness, victims of the drug war, and HIV. And the other one is Critical Resistance, an organization working to abolish prisons. Uh, those both sound awesome. Um, thank you, Michael, for that. Uh, there's there's their shout out. And, and you'll hear the rest of his uh, at the end, obviously. Uh, Michael is a guy that I think you should all go check out. He, he is active on, on social media, but really is just more doing awesome work, um, in, in the classroom and also with this book. So I'm going to do the same thing I offered with Emily Dufton a couple of weeks ago, by the way, shout out to Lauren in Cincinnati for getting the Emily Dufton book. Uh, she was the first person to reach out and say that she wanted to get the book. And I said, great, I'm sending it to you. Uh, so I'm going to do the same thing this week with Michael Rosino, the first person who hears this and says, hey, I'm, I want the book. Um, it's going to be yours. Uh, do not message me and say, hey, I'm buying the book. Uh, 
because, you know, that's kind of defeats the purpose. Message me and say, hey, has anyone claimed it yet? Or, hey, if no one has claimed it, I want the book and I'm going to send it to you. So uh, reach out. I would love to hear from you and enjoy this conversation with the amazing Michael Rodino. A quick shout out to my Patreon supporters. I am so grateful for your support and your love. Y'all have been with me since almost the beginning, and so much of this podcast could not be done without you. Almost to a person, they've all told me that they didn't join for the perks, although there are some pretty fantastic perks, but they've all joined just to support the show, and it really means so much to me. Now, if you join, you are going to get some stuff in return. You'll get sneak peeks, extra content, and the chance to interact with me on a second level. It's really a great way to show support if you love this show. So go ahead and check it out today. Go to patreon.com slash choose your struggle. The lowest tier is only $3.40 a month. And there's multiple tiers after that. There's something for everybody. So truly, I truly mean this. Thank you to all of my Patreon supporters. And if you've been waiting to sign up, well, now's a great time. So head on over to Patreon and show a little bit of love. Choose your struggle. Thanks for sharing the podcast with your friends. If you're listening on Apple, please rate and review or check out the review link in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm Michael Rosino. I am an assistant professor of sociology at Malloy College, uh, which is in Rockville Center. And um, I'm learning to say on Long Island instead of in Long Island. Um, I uh, am a sociologist that my work focuses on racial politics, um, issues around drug policy, media representations. I'm also uh, doing some work right now on grassroots democracy and sort of political organizing as well. So that's kind of my next big project. But um, I'm broadly interested in questions around um, racial inequality. Where do uh, the present racial inequalities we have come from? How are they impacting people? And obviously, so much of that is tied to uh, drug policy. So much of that is tied to the various ways that um, the media and politicians have created certain narratives around drug use um, and deployed, you know, laws and policies against them. So, um, so yeah, I, I just published my first book. Um, I'm really excited for people to read it. It's called Debating the Drug War. Uh, maybe I should save my plugs to the end, but uh, got to get them in. Um, we are definitely going to talk about your book. Obviously, that's how you came to, sure. to my attention. And and for the listeners, that book is Debating the Drug War, Race, Politics, and the Media. Um, but before we really get into that, because as as I love to, to joke on this show, that nobody just falls into this work. Nobody wakes up when they're eight years old and says, I want to study the war on people that we've called the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, what was it about this that, that kind of – piqued your interest and how did you get into this line of work so i um you know i grew up uh in sort of a predominantly white rural suburb kind of a a nice little suburban bubble um and as i started to really have sort of more um experiences around different groups of people um more diversity in my social circle particularly around race ethnicity 
you know, immigrant status, religion, uh, social class, all those uh, social categories that sociologists love to study. Um, I really became aware of the fact that, you know, our society just doesn't treat all people the same way. And one of the ways that I really noticed that was in just thinking about sort of trying to wrap my head around why it was that um, certain drugs were treated in certain ways, certain substances. Um, so, you know, like, like most uh, American teenagers, part of my sort of exploration of myself and, and you know, my boredom involved, um, you know, trying different substances um, you know, and particularly, I think one of the things that surprised me as much as it, I think, surprises a lot of people growing up, maybe this is like a light bulb moment for a lot of people who aren't maybe directly impacted by the legal system is just, um, sort of with that moment when you sort of debunk the dare propaganda that you receive about, uh, drugs and drug use, particularly, I think, around cannabis really being the big one, I think, for a lot of people that, you know, you, you begin to, to realize that, okay, this is actually probably less harsh and uh, sort of less uh, bad for you than alcohol, which is kind of this celebrated substance. Um, I think becoming aware of that sort of inconsistency and hypocrisy, you know, in a very sort of juvenile way, I always kind of had this little um, sense in my head that maybe something's not right here. Um, and, you know, as I, I, I furthered my education, I became really interested in sociology because it was answering a lot of really interesting questions that I had about why people do the things that they do. Um, you know, why does the world look the way that it does? You know, why do human beings um, interact with each other in certain ways? These big questions. And I always thought, OK, these are conversations that you can kind of just have weird debates uh, with your friends. This is, you know, before social media really took off. Um, but nobody's really like making a job out of like answering these questions. And particularly nobody is coming up with any like facts that are like, you know, grounding these in some type of thing, um, you know, that's based in evidence. And, you know, as I took sociology classes, because I didn't really know what it was, I kind of got hooked. I got the research bug as a lot of, uh, people in academia say, I became really interested in, in using um, research methods and, and thinking about these big questions and grounding them in some type of process that can allow me to kind of own it and actually start to answer some of them for myself. Um, as I went along in my training, um, I realized that this was a great opportunity for me to further explore some of these questions that I had uh, about drug policy and drug use and, you know, why are different types of drug use treated differently? Why are different populations treated differently for uh, drug use? You know, where, where does all this hypocrisy and inconsistency that where do all these paradoxes come from? Um, and as I delved deeper into it, I realized, um, you know, the media and our political system and our inequalities play a really big role in that. Um, I was, I would say, fairly masochistic as a graduate student as I was getting my doctorate because not only was I working on this project on the war on drugs, but I was also completing my dissertation, which was a uh, 
you know, a, in about a 14 month ethnography where I was also, you know, doing this completely other big research project. This is almost kind of like a vanity project for me, just thinking about something I was, I had been interested in for a long time. And, you know, I'm really grateful that actually, you know, I've managed to get some, uh, you know, some publications out of it and eventually write this book. Um, but essentially that's kind of my long winding path from, you know, sort of disgruntled uh, teenager in the suburbs to being a sociologist who wrote a book about the war on drugs. And as a sociologist, there is a word that I would apply to your book, and I think that word is methodical. This is not uh, some, you know, half-baked process. Your book was a lot of work. Can, can you talk a little bit so the listeners really understand why, I, why I'm saying that, that, <laughs> that this was something that you spent just so much time on? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, I have such a deep respect for anyone that writes a book because, you know, the writing, you know, beyond just the research was a whole nother thing. Um but, you know, sociology is an empirical social science. That means I can't um, just make claims that are based on anything other than evidence. You know, the, the book is filled with citations. The book is filled with evidence. Every single, you know, thing that I, I think, you know, maybe um, this is a thing that just happened out of nowhere. You know, I'm responsible for trying to understand the historical and social forces that led to a particular issue. Um, I've always been sort of an innately curious person. I've kind of have um, a a tendency to sort of like hyper focus on something and get really lost in all of the the details and get really far into the weeds. And I really lucked out to be able to find a career that uh, actually rewards me for that. Um, So that's been really incredible. But yeah, the, the, the research itself that went into this book was not only just looking at, you know, what other people have written about the war on drugs or looking into historical documents or something like that. I, I would say the part that was the most tedious and difficult um, was that the book, you know, sort of the core of the book is me essentially doing an analysis of uh, thousands, uh, around 3,000 newspaper articles that have been published since the early 80s on the war on drugs, as well as, or I'm sorry, 300 articles, uh, about 3,000 internet comments that were posted on news sites that uh, discussed the war on drugs. Um, And that process itself was very daunting, very draining, as anyone who spent any kind of significant time online knows, uh, the comment section is about the worst place you could possibly go. Uh, I would I would recommend maybe, especially after this, that people maybe stay away from the comment sections or take a break. If you feel pulled into it, if you feel that uh, that endorphin rush or that serotonin, you know, um, uh, to get pulled into a random argument. But it was a really great source of data for trying to understand just something really basic, which is what are people saying about drugs and drug policy? You know, we, we've, for so long, the war on drugs has been this hot button issue. Everyone has opinions about drug policy, you know, and since I've written this book, I've received so many unsolicited opinions about uh, 
drug policy, how the how the government should handle drug use, you know, what types of things we should be worried about, you know, what what's at stake. And so what I really wanted to do is look at like what are the overall themes? What are the big ideas that are really shaping this debate? And then where do those ideas come from? And how are they determining some of these things that we might all be noticing about sort of like the paradoxical treatment of, of people and substances. Um, and so I would definitely not recommend um, reading thousands of internet comments, but uh, it definitely paid off for me. And uh, it really gave me a really holistic view, a big sort of big picture view of the types of points and, and ideas that really um, have played a big role in our drug war debate, our drug policy debate as a society. Yeah, I love that, you know, uh, rule number one of the Internet is stay out of the uh, comment section. And rule number one of your book was I'm going to wade into the comment section. Mm -hmm. uh, it was it, it's very impressive. If you had to guess, how long did the just the research part of this book take you? Um, I would say just the research part was maybe about two years. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was going through a phase where I was really kind of in this like grinding things out, like almost workaholic phase. I was a little bit younger. I really can't do that anymore. And, uh, you know, I'm glad I kind of have slowed down. Um, but yeah, I can remember, for instance, you know, being on winter break, I'm at, I'm at a, uh, I'm at a family member's house and it's like a few days before Christmas. And, and what am I doing, but just sitting here reading uh, racist internet comments, because I think at some point it'll pay off in some kind of way. So um, yeah, I mean, I mean, doing this kind of research, it takes a lot of dedication and a lot of time and energy. Um, you know, it, usually uh, it, it has to be something that you really care about, I would say. I think that's really what, what kind of stuck me with it. It was like, I really want to figure this out. I really want to understand um, why things are like this in, in really like a really broad sense. Um, and it, it, for me, uh, the research was actually transformative of, of how I think about and view all these issues. So, you know, it had a really profound impact on um, my own perception of things like drug use, drug policy, um, race and ethnicity. Um, and so that was actually a really good experience for me um, as well. So your book starts with... Uh two chapters or the first chapter the introduction is a, is a really interesting uh a couple of or 20 pages or so for anyone who who wants a sort of a, a broader view but then you get really down to the nitty-gritty in this uh and i think personally the most fascinating part of your book was chapter three uh, this is just my own opinion obviously mm -hmm. but and which is about how the media frames the war on drugs. And I kind of came away from it. And, and, and this is one of those places where you can tell me, no, this is very wrong. But I came away from it honestly believing if it was not for the media, while the war on drugs would have continued to be this disastrous policy that, that it has been, the the blowing up to a broader scale to being a social encompassing issue would never have happened. Is, am I right on that or am I way off base? I think, you know, it's, it's really difficult to say. I think 
I, I, um, you know, that's a difficult hypothesis. Can we imagine a world without the media? I mean, we're, we're doing the media right now. So um, even a sociologist, I don't think, can really wrap their heads around that. But I think you're definitely right in the sense that the media plays a much larger role than we often think in sort of uh, constraining our policy debates. Um, on one hand, amplifying certain voices, on the other hand, silencing others. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the amount of, of, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is the spaces that have opened up um, for people to express their experiences, thoughts, and opinions on something, on an issue like this, has had definitely an impact on how things are discussed and talked about. You know, I obviously, you know, the trends that I looked at were fairly consistent um, from about the early 80s to the early 2010s. But who knows um, what this might look like if I were to go back and do it now, particularly after sort of America's quote unquote uh, racial reckoning, um, the backlash to that racial reckoning that's taking place right now, um, the explosion of, of, of specific types of social media that are um, shaped by algorithms, all of those things, more than we'd like to think, um, are influencing these big public debates that are shaping the way that people think about big policy issues. Um, so every time I, you know, we think about a policy and we think about this policy outcome, the media plays such a big role in shaping public perceptions. Um, and you know, we can probably even think of, you know, there are a few moments. Um, I would say, you know, when when Michelle Alexander's "The New Jim Crow" uh, came out, it's definitely spurred more debate. Um, you know, I think that when some of the things around um, the CIA's role in the crack ep ep epidemic began to get a little bit more light, it probably uh, shifted public opinion. But um, when it comes to how the media frames the debate, as, as the uh, chapter is called, um, the media has had actually a pretty consistent narrative on the war on drugs. It's particularly around sort of why the war on drugs or drug policies need to be reformed. And that's what I found to be so fascinating is that certain arguments for um, reforming drug laws were so consistent, almost like accepted wisdom of like, you kind of have to talk about these points if you want to uh, argue for reforming our drug laws. And you kind of should not emphasize these points because they're less convenient. Um, and seeing that so across the board, across, you know, whether it was local newspapers, big newspapers, like I said, over decades, um, that was surprising to me. I, I actually expected to see a lot more change. Um, so, yeah, I mean, really, I wanted to highlight the role of the media um, and, and what it does and how it influences these conversations we're all having. You discuss what I think is a really interesting or, – or let me, let me say this a different way. You put a name to something that I think is a very understood concept, but, but, you, but you discuss it through the lens of, of the war on drugs here, which is you call the common sense myths. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about that idea and how they come into play on this topic? Um, yeah. So common sense myths are um, things that – I think most people 
believe to be true or just kind of accept as a fact, uh, particularly when it relates to, you know, we can really ground it in these examples of the war on drugs, but things that people believe to be true or, or accept as sort of, well, that's common sense, that's obvious, um, that it turns out are complete myths. Um, you know, when we look at almost any drug policy, uh, particularly punitive drug policies that are about punishing people for drug use, there's always some kind of myth that is exaggerating the moral or public health impact of the, the drug use itself in order to depict it as a threat to justify some type of reaction. And these myths, so for instance, one of the myths that I really identified in the book is I think most people don't know that for the majority of, you know, the best available evidence that we have about history and what's going on right now, um, the majority of not only drug use, but drug sales and even drug distributing, um, drug trafficking is done by white people. It's done by people who are of, you know, European origin. Um, considering the, the sort of moral panics that people have about violent urban gangs or about, you know, these sort of foreign drug smuggling rings that really pose a threat, you know, just that one basic myth has shaped uh, so much of the way that even drug reformers talk about the war on drugs. So, you know, there's this assumption that the war on drugs is bad because it empowers and gives resources to these uh, violent criminal, uh, usually, you know, racialized others who are either, you know, uh, black or, or Latinx. Um, those who, t those tend to be depicted as like drug criminals in the media. And, um, just that one misconception even shapes those kind of reform arguments that this is, you know, um, that violent, uh, black and Latinx, uh, gangs and people are the primary, you know, dysfunction of the war on drugs that it's created this quote unquote black market. Um, and so, you know, seeing how those myths become common sense, what their function is, and how they're impacting the debate and the policies, I think is uh, really important. And, and really what I want is for people to push back against those myths. That's why, you know, I hope that more people will read the book so that when they're having conversations about drug policy or drug use or something like that, if nothing else, when one of these uh, myths or assumptions is alluded to that they can actually push back and say, well, that's not actually true. And then that actually um, changes the entire scope of the conversation. Just some of these basic facts that um, researchers have found and, and proven that um, have been kind of, uh, you know, locked out of the debate. They, they haven't been accepted as truth. Um, so that's one. There's obviously quite a few others in the book. Um, you know, at the risk of spoiling it, I won't. I won't talk about those. Well, uh, that we're we're going to talk uh, towards the end about things we can all do with, with some of this information. But before we get into my next round of questions, let's pause real quick. And if you wouldn't mind shouting out where people can find you online, where they can buy the book, anything you want people to know. Absolutely, my uh, Twitter handle is Michael at Michael Rosino. My last name is spelled R-O-S-I-N-O. Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I guess I didn't really learn my lesson after doing this, this research. Um, 
but I do use it as a space to, you know, talk about not only my work, but to publicize relevant, you know, political activism going on in communities, uh, news stories, research, information. Uh, I also post a lot of really cute pictures of my cats. So that might also be sort of a main, a main draw for people. Uh, my website is michaelrosino.com. Um, the book, you can publish it pretty much anywhere. I know that sometimes you partner with bookshops. So I, I, I will say specifically, try to buy my uh, book through bookshop. You know, let's cut, let's cut Jeff Bezos out of the process. You can also buy it at rutledge.com. That's the, the publisher. Um, but, I, you know, it's, it's pretty much available at any major uh, online retailer um, as well. And, uh, you know, if, you're, if you happen to be someone who's teaching a class about drug use or drug policy, you can also get a review copy through the website and um, get a free copy and consider using it in, um, in a classroom because it does have discussion questions. It has a glossary. It's very much designed to sort of spur and provoke discussion. And, you know, that classroom discussion around these issues, I think, you know, as I've already used it in some of my classes, it's it's been pretty fruitful. Hey, y'all, it's me, your host. I'm sorry to interrupt what I'm sure is a fantastic episode of the podcast, but I have to give a quick shout out to my partner, Roadrunner CBD. They have been working with me for a while now, and I just love their products. They have everything from tinctures to muscle gels, and all of them are fantastic. You know, I rub the muscle gel on my legs before I run, and they keep me feeling pretty good, which is saying something. So check out Roadrunner today at their website, www.roadrunnercbd.com slash ref, R-E-F slash C-Y-S. Again, that's roadrunnercbd.com slash ref slash C-Y-S, and use the code C-Y-S at checkout to let them know that I sent you and get 10% off. Trust me, you're gonna love this. I've sent some of their products to a couple different people and they've all become repeat customers. So check it out today and don't forget to let them know that Choose Your Struggle sent you. Find me on social media. Check the link in the show notes or search for me, Jay Schiffman on YouTube and LinkedIn and Choose Your Struggle on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I learned a lot from this book, obviously, as a person who who d- sort of researches this full time, but am nowhere close to the research level that you did on this. Was there anything that you came in either uh, thinking one thing and then obviously your research changed your mind? Or was there any sort of big surprises for you mm-hmm. in, in the research? I would say there were two because, you know, I, I want to have the humility to say that these some of, you know, common sense myths impact everyone. That's why they're sort of common sense. Everyone is walking around, you know, it, it, in any topic that I haven't done this much research on, I'm I'm just as likely as anyone else to have some type of misconception about it, you know, and I think it's worth owning that. Um, so before I went into this project, I think, you know, there were probably a few things that I thought, if I can kind of time travel back to that uh, mind state, I think the, the probably a major one was just not understanding the historical scope and scale of punitive drug policies, you know, realizing that, you know, I always thought like many people that the war on drugs is like something that, that Nixon said in the sixties, Reagan made it real in the eighties. This is kind of our pop history. I think that we have, 
But I didn't know that even dating all the way back to, you know, the 1870s, there were punitive drug laws that were targeting um, Chinese immigrants over um, their uh, opening of, of, of opium dens in San Francisco and California that, you know, even back then, so early on in, in our country's history, that there was a racist moral panic around substance use that led to a broader um, wave of, you know, and fed into what's known as the, the yellow peril, which is this whole idea that um, Chinese immigrants uh, at the time in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, were seen as like these foreign invaders, this foreign horde that could take over America. They were seen as, as fundamentally unable to like assimilate into American society. And um, also that that's led to one of the first uh, exclusionary immigration policies that literally said, we're going to exclude an entire ethnicity of people from the United States. So I think one thing was just how old this is. This, this story that um, comes through in the book about sort of the way that, that policymakers and the media connect different substances to different ethnic groups as a means of uh, demonizing not only the users of that substance, but the members of that group and justify unequal treatment has been happening for centuries. And I, I had no idea. So I would say that's one part of it. I think the other part of it is that I just really didn't understand that um, discussions of racial inequality and racial justice have played actually such a small role in the public drug policy debate over the past few decades. So at the risk of spoiling maybe another uh, myth is, is that I think, you know, all of us uh, kind of, I think a lot of people who really delve into the, the war on drugs, I think a lot of people are familiar with like, okay, reefer madness, um, you know, the, the crack e epidemic and how that um, corresponds with like targeting certain communities or, you know, the, the different like scares that have happened around different substances. Um, I think people are kind of vaguely aware of that, but I don't think people necessarily understand or or talk about very frequently the scope and scale of discrimination that takes place in the legal system, how that leads to these pipelines that are feeding into outcomes like uh, Black and Latinx uh, people in the United States being, you know, the majority of the prison population, despite being a, a minority of the uh, population at large things like that, like really understanding that process. And I didn't really understand the extent to which that was purely a reflection of the, the um, policies and the way that people are treated and discrimination and targeting that's taking place. You know, Before I did my research, I probably would have thought, well, maybe that's going on. But um, I think anyone who's who, a sociologist who studies inequality, it's almost like you're taking like a conspiracy theory and then you're going, oh, my God, there's so much evidence for this. And that's not to, you know, um, make myself sound like a crackpot, but in the sense that, you know, these, these, um, these mechanisms um, can actually be proven, um, as, I, as I attempted to do in the book. 
And so I think I just wasn't aware of where those disparities came from. I was aware that they were, they existed. I thought they were kind of fucked up. I thought it like, it wasn't good. You know, maybe I had had some sense of that, but um, I think that was one of the things that really blew my mind is, is just the, not only the historical scope, but how much of issues like mass incarceration or the hyper policing and incarceration of certain communities um is so deeply linked to drug policies and how they're enforced specifically. So two points on that. Number one, I really appreciate the highlighting of the historical context because that's something that I talk about. Probably my listeners would say at nauseum on this show. <laughs> but the second point that I think is so interesting is that another thing that your book does so well is really cast a net to show just how many different arguments are being used when we talk about this topic, both positive and negative, right? You have people on both sides of of the war on drugs who talk about it, as you've been saying, from a criminal justice and a racist uh, racial standpoint. But the bigger one, if I'm, if I'm reading your book correctly, was actually a financial discussion, which I found fascinating. Yeah, I think, you know, that really has... So uh, there were kind of two big ones, I guess I would say. The, the, first, the, the actual biggest one is, is an argument that we hear all the time, which is the war on drugs has failed, that it's dysfunctional. Um, the second largest is one that I think we're also all familiar with if we've been following drug policy, which is that it's a financial issue, that um, you know people talk about how much taxpayer money has been uh, basically thrown in the trash, <laughs> As, as you know, as a way of putting it, there's kind of this libertarian argument that it's a waste of taxpayer dollars. It even fit. It kind of corresponds with the argument about the war on drugs being a bad investment because it's a failure. What it was intended to do and what it's failed to do is really not clear, because um, you know, very critical uh, types like myself would say that the war on drugs was intentionally designed to uh, reproduce racial oppression. And so it's been very effective at that. I wouldn't consider it a failure. Um, you know, maybe by some of the talking points that are used to uphold it, it's been a failure. Um, but the financial argument is so interesting because we can see glimmers of that in the current debate around uh, cannabis policy reform that are taking place in, um, you know, at the state level right now. You know, so many states have recently legalized or decriminalized cannabis. I think there's a growing consensus that, um, you know, federal decriminalization is likely inevitable at some point. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, I, I even was thinking when Governor Cuomo um, announced that he wanted to try to look at um, legalizing cannabis in New York, um, his first argument that he led with for why it was good was all about that it would generate tax revenue, that it would generate money for uh, the state, that it would stop sort of wasting money on failed programs and policies. The secondary argument that I think he was making to communities, but not to elites, um, you know, to, to the actual communities impacted by the war on drugs was, okay, yeah, also you know, th there's like unjust policing practices and like people are being stopped and frisked and like, you know, that's bad too. But more importantly, we can raise a lot of revenue for the state of New York. You know, we might be able to lower the taxes of some 
elites because we'll get all these sales taxes. It'll be a boon to industry. We'll get all these uh, weed entrepreneurs into the state and it'll revitalize the economy. You know, and these types of arguments really take uh, precedent a lot of times and kind of eclipse the very real human uh, toll of the actual war on drugs. The the uh, injustice uh, and oppression side of it is oftentimes eclipsed by just this idea that it's such a like this untapped industry. Um, and I think, you know, capitalism creates a lot of perverse incentives for um, the interest uh, for any type of reform to happen, it kind of has to align with some argument that economic elites can kind of wrap their heads around. And I, I find that the financial argument um, has increasingly become that argument for uh, a lot of drug reform policies that sort of make it seem like, okay, this is common sense. People can also get rich off of it. People that are already very wealthy can, can um, you know, invest and, and make millions or even billions of dollars off of this emergent industry. So I find that to be really interesting and fascinating, especially as we talk about um, the emergence of the, the uh, cannabis industry. Um, who are the players involved? Who's benefiting from it? Who's being locked out? You know, we, we can kind of see the toll that this purely capitalistic sort of financial reasoning has, has actually played in some of the outcomes we see um in how these policies actually play out. So, um, yeah, I think, and, and like I said, I think these aren't frames that are going to blow anyone's mind necessarily, because if you've had a, a conversation about drug policy, you've probably heard some of these, you know, many of these points before. People, people can kind of just list them off. But um, really looking at the impacts that it has on the debate and our policy uh, was really fascinating to me. So, Couple, couple points on that into my next question. That is, I think, a really important uh, distinction to make because there, there has been. I would say this is a minority, but, but, but there has been a. Um, if if you keep track of some of these storylines, uh, 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 attempt to sort of rewrite history in the sense of, oh, people realized the rights of their wrongs and they decided to legalize cannabis. That's not what happened. Mm -hmm. We've we've never once heard a person in a boardroom say the words, I was wrong about the dangers of cannabis. While we have had incredible people uh, like past guests on the show, Mason Tavert, who, who really helped get Colorado and California to, to legalize legalize all of the changes afterwards have been because they were able to make money off of it. absolutely so so the question i guess i have for you going into what i mentioned before is number one do you see that as a viable way to then help decriminalize or legalize other uh substances and number two sort of using that as a springboard what can we do with all of this incredible information in your book to to affect positive change? I would say that, you know, that's a really interesting question. I think um, America right now is really gripped with, I guess, what I would call like cannabis exceptionalism. I think that there is an entirely, uh, there's two parallel conversations that take place. One is, okay, I guess we can all recognize cannabis has been exaggerated in terms of its its negative impacts, and that's not considered controversial anymore. 
But I think, you know, you think about someone like um, Dr. Carl Hart, who, um, you know, also studies drug use, coming out, acknowledging that he um, uses heroin, for instance, and the amount of stigma and backlash that still came along with that. Even though researchers have been saying for years that all, um, you know, the, all of the, the illicit drugs, um, that, you know, even the ones that we think of as like hard drugs, you know, heroin, cocaine, uh, opiates, um, the majority of users of those drugs don't develop substance use disorders. Um, you know, people have been studying, uh, you know, the the specific context, you know, social context and psychological processes that lead drug use to become, uh, or that lead substance use to become um, someone developing a substance use disorder. Um, but I think that that hasn't really penetrated the conversation. I think that right now, um, it's kind of like there is definitely this thing where it's like, okay, um, yeah, we'll let you have weed. That's fine. Um, don't push it. I think there's there there's still I think that there is a massive system the the criminal uh, sort of the criminal justice system and the prison industrial complex is still banking on um, most Americans having an extremely stigmatized view of other substances and, and having that as a boogeyman. I think that you know it would be I I am very much in favor of taking a totally sort of harm reduction slash pleasure maximization approach to substance use. Um, I'm, I, as you can see in the book, I'm, I'm very pro evidence-based policies, even though that, that oftentimes feels like, um, you know, talking into a void, but I think that in an ideal world, that is a viable way of addressing um, different substances. I'm not sure that um, creating a profit incentive is necessarily creates healthy incentives for just about anything, including, you know, when I talk about how the media is run or anything, I don't, I don't know that there should necessarily be a profit incentive. And, and I would actually probably prefer if the cannabis industry were maybe more of a nonprofit industry. Um, but I think it's entirely possible to, you know, imagine a system where we entirely cut the legal system out of it and entirely uh, remove the punitive aspects of, of uh, our tr approach to all drugs. Um, you know, and, and I think one of the things that, that is worth considering is the fact that we do kind of take this approach to other substances. So like there's clearly people who are making tons and tons of money off of, of prescription opiates. Um, so we can see some of the dysfunction there, but that, you know, it's all about sort of what, um, what is convenient, what, what is convenient for the interests of elites. And I don't want to be too overly cynical about it, but I do think that that is going to take a lot more pushback. Um, and I think the important thing is, is once again, pushing back at the stage that we're at is just pushing back against the, the falsehoods, pushing back against the myths and not allowing um, these dominant narratives to stigmatize our fellow human beings who use substances, whether they're struggling with a substance use disorder or they use substances in a way that um, isn't disordered and, and isn't disrupting their lives um, in any kind of way. 
that they're human beings who deserve support and care. I think pushing that kind of idea, I think, is really crucial for even getting to that next phase where we can say, okay, how do we actually want to treat this um, as a society? Uh, before we get into the final couple of questions that I, I, I always close the show with, if you wouldn't mind one more time shouting out where people can find you, where they can buy the book and anything else you want them to know. Uh, yeah, so people can find me. Um, you know, if you're interested, actually, I, I will also say for particularly like nerdy listeners who are really want to get into some of the nitty gritty of this. Um, if you go to my Google Scholar page, you can probably find or even on my personal website, michaelrosino.com, you can find some of the more, um, you know, scholarly research articles I've written about this as well that um, are less sort of contextualized, but get even more into some of my analysis of these media representations and, and their impacts. Um, but yeah, uh, at Michael Rosino on Twitter, feel free to follow me. Um, you know, if, if uh, my my email is is mrosino at malloy.edu. That's my work email. But if anyone's interested in in collaborating or connecting, um, you know, if there's anything you want to do with maybe some of this research, or you think some of the the information that I'm providing can be helpful to you personally or an organization, um, you know, I'm always happy to do interviews, uh, guest lectures, talk to people. I love to connect with other people who are active and passionate about. Um, this kind of work. So please feel free to reach out to me um, in any kind of way like that. I would say those are probably the main ways to connect with me. Fantastic. Well, uh, as you know, because you've heard the show, uh, we always finish with the same two questions every time. The mm -hmm. first of which is, what are your self-care habits? My self-care habits are being, I would say, number one, uh giving myself permission to be lazy. I want to give a shout out to a book I read recently called Laziness Does Not Exist. It's written by a social psychologist. And essentially what they have done is go through and use research and evidence. It's written in a really accessible way, probably even more so than my book. And it talks about all of the evidence um, that most people actually, you know, that what we consider laziness as a society is usually someone struggling with a mental health condition or burnout. Um, and so that's been a major sort of internal self-care practice for me. There's so much pressure in our society to be a hustler, a go-getter, workaholic. Uh, people brag about how many hours they work. Um, and, you know, and I even kind of got caught up in that because it really is rewarded in, in academia. And so I would say, you know, the biggest kind of breakthrough I had was just making that connection of, of what they called the, the laziness lie and being like, no, it's okay for me to do nothing. You know, doing nothing is, is great. So I would say that's a big one. Um, I love to take uh, bubble baths. So like with bath bombs and all that kind of stuff. I now live in, um, you know, this is my first sort of like adult apartment. You know, um, my partner and I live in, in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, in a really nice apartment that we definitely couldn't have afforded before our current jobs. And it is the first place that I've lived in a really long time with a functioning bathtub. So I've really been enjoying that. I love listening to podcasts. Uh, I am I love playing video games. There's a lot of Switch games that I play that are just kind of relaxing, turn your brain off. 
Um, I love doing yoga, all of those kinds of things. Um, yeah, I would say those are kind of the big ones that I really try to practice. And, um, you know, going to therapy, talking to a therapist is obviously huge for me and so many other people. Um, first of all, so I'm not like dumping all my problems onto my partner and she's like, talk to somebody else, but because it's so great to get someone else's perspective, you know, to feel validated, to work through those kind of issues. So, you know, I'm probably not, um, giving anyone like new ideas they've never heard of before, but those have been really groundbreaking for me, uh, to discover and, and, and make part of like my habits. I love it, man. That was very thorough and, and a lot of wonderful ideas in there. You're the, I think the third person in the last like month who said bubble baths. And so I got to tell you, I've never been a bath person, but you know, this is uh, making me rethink my, my position on that. It'll, it'll change your sleep. That's the big thing. If you take it, <laughs> take one in the evening um, and kind of just transition into bed, like once you're drying off and you will sleep so good. I love it, man. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Well, uh, the last uh, question that we always ask is is the one that I know you're waiting for, which is uh, we've, we've now spent the last 45 minutes hearing why you're incredible. We should all be checking out your work. But who are some other people you're following, listening to, reading, watching, whatever you want to shout out? Yeah. So it, it, actually in the book, this is like the conclusion of the book. I list a lot of activists and organizations that are doing really great work um, on these issues. So I definitely want to give a big shout out to the Drug Policy Alliance. Um, they have been doing really amazing work at, um, you know, shifting the conversation around drug policy, really making sure that questions of racial equity, um, as we're reforming these policies, that they are front and center. So um, the Drug Policy Alliance is, is a great organization. Um, I also want to give a shout out to um, the Center for Community Change. Um, they're, all, they're also doing a lot of great work uh, around this, the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Um, those are probably some big ones. Uh, I've really appreciated people like uh, Dr. Carl Hart, who I'm sure listeners are aware of, who have really tried to normalize and destigmatize uh, substance use. Um, I think that, um, you know, one thing that I want to, um, you know, just encourage listeners to do is as they're paying attention to these current policy debates, uh, around drug policy is just to keep in mind that this is a great opportunity to right these wrongs. And so if you look into organizations like the Drug Policy Alliance, they are really making sure that when, when policies do get passed, that they're equitable, that they are uh, actually an opportunity for um, marginalized communities to benefit from these new policies, that they're not creating new ways that people of color uh, or low-income people can are caught up in, in the web. Um, they've been really effective in, in sort of shaping the current uh, cannabis laws in New York um, that have a lot of that focus. So I want to encourage people to pay attention to those things. Um, I would say, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, yeah. Well, thank you 
for all of that. A lot of great ones in there. Huge Carl Hart fan here, and and you know I, I uh, definitely echo the the Drug Policy Alliance shout out. My listeners know uh, I had Kellen Roos and Yellow from Drug Policy Alliance on here last summer, and we did a, a big fundraiser for them. So uh, definitely check those Absolutely. out. And, and and Michael, thank you so much for for coming on. This has been fascinating. I I cannot say enough, listeners. Go check out Debating the Drug War, Race and Politics, Race, Politics, and the Media. Uh, yes, buy it from Bookshop, but, you know, if you see it at your little uh, neighborhood bookstore or something like that, pick it up there, too. It's definitely a wonderful read and will open your eyes. So, Michael, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jay. This was fun. The Choose Your Struggle podcast has been so lucky to have numerous truly change-making authors on this show. From Adi Jaffe to Emily Dufton, We have been blessed by hearing them speak, and now it's time to grab their works. Now, you could go to Amazon if you wanted to shop online, but let's be honest, that's not the right choice. So I'm going to invite you to head over to my partner, Bookshop. If you go to bookshop.org slash shop slash CYS, again, that's bookshop.org slash shop slash CYS, you're going to find all of your favorite books and you're going to support the podcast in the process. But that's not even the best part. Bookshop has an incredible program that allows you to select your favorite mom and pop or neighborhood bookstore, and they will give them some of the proceeds from your order. Now, living here in Philly, that's been a really hard choice because we have fantastic bookstores all over. But I selected Harriet, which is a truly wonderful black-owned bookstore in northern Philly. I love it. My wife loves it. We go there as much as we can. Honestly, why would you go anywhere else? So again, go check out Bookshop at bookshop.org shop CYS. You're going to find the book you're looking for. You're going to support your neighborhood bookstore, and you're going to support the podcast in the process. So check it out today and go ahead and buy that book you've been waiting for. Subscribe to my Patreon for behind-the-scenes looks at the podcast, sneak peeks, and bonus data. You'll also get a discount on Choose Your Struggle merch. Find it at patreon.com slash choose your struggle. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Michael Rosino. I found his work to be incredibly fascinating, and I cannot recommend the book enough. Uh, So reach out, and I'm going to send it to you. And if you're interested and it's already been taken, uh, I'll send you a sticker or something. So there is no downside to reaching out this week. Definitely do so. All right, your card this week is going to be from the Train Your Brain card pack. Uh, This is by Jennifer Sweeten, Dr. Jennifer Sweeten. Um, Here is your card. Locating resources. Most of us have resources in the body, which are places that feel safe, strong, or peaceful. To connect with those areas, first identify the positive experience that you have hoped to connect with in the body, such as calm or happiness. Now focus on your body, slowly moving your attention upward from your feet, legs, and chest all the way through your head. As you scan each region, ask yourself, is this resource in your body? Is this, no, is the resource in this area of my body? Jot down what you discover so you can remember to connect with these resourced areas. Uh, That's interesting. I, I have never heard of that idea before of having, you know, I, I don't even know what that means. Um, I'll say this. If someone tries this, 
and, and comes up or, or, or figures that out. I would love to hear from you. Uh, if, if this is something that you are into already, uh, I, this idea of resources in the body, uh, I would love to hear from you. Please reach out. Maybe I can even have you as a snippet on an intro or, or an outro or something. Um, because this is totally foreign to me. What a re- the calm, like I, I get the idea, I guess, of, of, of um, there being uh, calm and, and, and happiness in your body, you know, but, but how fine, I don't know, like having it hidden or finding it, like that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So um, if this is something that you have tried, if this is something that you do on the regular, uh, please reach out. I would love to hear from you. All right, your good egg for today is going to be pretty simple. It's just going to be stand up for yourself. And, and not it doesn't have to be in an assholeish way. I think a lot of times we think of standing up for yourself like puffing out your chest. And, and No, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, to, to put this in or sort of bring this home. So, you know, we, we're renting this house in Philadelphia, and we, we love the area. We, the house is fine. Um, unfortunately for the owner, uh, the house is either a lemon or when he had it redone, they did a terrible job because there's something wrong with it every single day. Uh, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I'm sitting on a, on a call, um, and uh, all of a sudden my feet were wet. And I was like, that's not, that's not a thing that's supposed to happen. And I look up and the wall is just not, it's not like pouring, but it's more than a trickle coming through the wall. So I immediately jump up, I'm on a zoom and I start tearing everything away from this wall. I take down pictures. Um, It it was because, I mean, like I said, it was not just a trickle. There was significant water coming in through the wall. Uh, now, okay, freak stuff happens. No, we had reported uh, when the day we moved in, which was almost four months ago, almost four months ago, that there was already water damage in this area. You could see it, and they had said, eh, "Don't worry about it." And now, you know, I was lucky. Um, something that I care about very deeply. I think I mentioned this actually when I was talking about this experience. Was I have a book that my grandmother wrote about my my now deceased grandfather signed by both of them. It is one of my cherished possessions. Uh, luckily, it, it did get a little wet, but luckily I was able to save it. Um, and, and I have a signed jersey that was on the wall that the back out. I mean, it was annoying because we had told them about this problem and they dismissed us. Um, and, and now there's another thing that they are trying not to fix because the owner decided he didn't want to spend the money. I mean, I guess to the to our property manager's credit, <laughs> she has told us that, you know, that the owner is just like, nah, I don't want to do it. So uh, I finally had enough this week. And I, I'm sure this will have played out by the time this comes out. Of course it will. Have. But I finally stood up for us and I said, this is ridiculous. You know, uh, not only are these basic things, but it's also in the least, uh, you know, this one of the, the problems is literally in the least and they're not doing it. So uh, at first we were trying to be good tenants. We were trying to be helpful and just deal with it. And and now we're just like, nah, we're done with that. So, um, you know, stuff happens. Obviously, you don't want to be that person that demands satisfaction every time a little thing happens. But we have gone above and beyond this has been going on for four months now without any uh, resolutions. Uh, I think it's time that we were okay to stand up for ourselves. So that's your good egg. Uh, stand up for yourself. <laughs> Make sure that you are aware of, uh, you know, your worth and, and you know, communicate that. So, uh, but above all else, as always, <laughs> be vulnerable, show your empathy, spread your love, and choose your struggle.